I just want to know what happened. And what do you think? Welcome to the Theater People Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. You know what I want even more is to be just who I was before. You guys, today we are bringing you an episode in two parts. Up first, we're chatting with our good friend, Laura Osnes. This, by the way, is Laura's fourth time on the podcast about her beautiful work in this season's Bandstand, currently playing at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater. Laura, as most of you know, shot to stardom in 2007 as the winner of the reality TV show, Grease, You're the One That I Want. From there, she's gone on to star in six Broadway shows, originating three leading roles and earning two Tony nominations. For today's episode, she invited us to her perfectly appointed dressing room at the Jacobs to chat about her journey creating the role of Julia Trojan from Bandstand's original workshop up through Broadway. In the second half of the show, we'll chat with Henry Lewis and Jonathan Sayer, two of the actors and writers of The Play That Goes Wrong, who will give us the backstory of how their show went from a tiny one-act playing in a theater above a pub to the Olivier Award-winning smash hit and Broadway favorite. That's what widowhood does. I resent it because there are days when I just want to be Osnes. Hi! It's so good to see you. Thank you, Theater People Podcast. Yay! I know. Hi, welcome back for the 15th time. People are like, is she officially a co-host? I'm like, I think so. Great, I'll take that. Because <laughs> you're hurting for work. Or like a groupie or a something? Yeah. Like Perfect. Like a VIP guest? Yeah, exactly. Just okay. like once a month. Let's just make it a thing. Great. Contracts are signed. <laughs> um, hi. hi! First question. Gorgeous dressing room. I was thinking about this today. Do you ever have the moment of thinking, like, what if I hadn't taken the day off from that dinner theater gig to go audition for that reality show? Yes. I often do. I often do have that moment. Or if the director hadn't let me. Like, I wrote him a letter kind of explaining why I felt I needed to go and that my first commitment was to the show, but I was really feeling like I should fly to Los Angeles, but I understand either way. And if he had been like, no, we really need you, your understudy, you know, isn't prepared and yes, we're your first, you know, obligation, then I I would have never done that. I could have never flown to Los Angeles and stood in line with thousands of people and won a reality show and gone on Broadway 10 years ago. I mean, where would you be right now? I would probably be in Minnesota um, performing there. I had started to become a little bit of a name there, I guess, so to speak. I don't know. But I feel like I would have maybe been out here by now and like going to open calls and trying to like make it happen. I can't tolerate that future. I, I mean, everyone does it. I had a very mm-hmm. lucky, not that the reality show was easy, but it put me on the map really quickly, um, which is not typical. And neither, and we've talked about this a million times, but neither is like such incredible success after the fact, right? Gosh, thank you. I That is true. A lot of times a reality show will like make you a star for a moment and then you, you have to prove yourself beyond that. And I, I did work hard to try to prove myself beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So bandstand. Yes. I'm obsessed. Thank you. I am too. <laughs> there's more than one man, maybe I should. 
Remember how you were sort of now sort of like famously unavailable for the original workshop? Yes. Um, I was asked to do a reading, which I did like three and a half years ago. And then like a year later, they were doing a workshop at Lincoln Center, like a four week long lab. And the day of the presentation was the day that one of my best friends was getting married in Utah. And I said... I was like, guys, thank you so much, but it's it's just a workshop, like, and my best friend's getting married. And I decided in that moment to choose life over career, which, again, is very rare in our business. It's Our lives often revolve around career and have to be – we're forced to kind of work around the show schedule. And um, I decided to choose life in that moment, and they came back, and they were like, what if we moved the dates of the workshop <laughs> – so that it was over by the time the wedding was. And I was like, well, I mean, okay. You know what I mean? Like if that, if you're going to move everything around for me, then I have, then yes, I will do it. And they did. And thank God they did. Um, because that's when I actually really fell in love with Bandstand was seeing it on its feet and living and breathing it. And um, actually setting foot in Julia's shoes those four weeks really made me fall in love with the show. For example, with Bonnie and Clyde, you did that from beginning to end. You're doing this beginning to who, who knows how long, but you've been with this for like so long. You know, what kind of imprint does that leave on your soul? When you're like 90 years old and you look back on this, like has your DNA changed? It's a it's a wild question. Um, yes, because because you've invest I've invested so much of this, my heart has been attached to this project for three and a half years. And so getting to see it through to being on Broadway and playing originating this role I'm the only person who has ever played Julia Trojan like that's what's so cool because even for Bonnie and Clyde like it was an original musical and I was getting to originate that role but Bonnie has existed and other people have played Bonnie and she's based on a real thing and there was a movie and etc this is completely 100% original and um 
there is a unique sense of ownership over that that yes has changed has changed my DNA and yes will like live with me forever and I think as artists we kind of throw ourselves into our work like if I wasn't I wouldn't be here if I wasn't passionate about it and there were other things that came along the last three and a half years that I said no to because my heart was invested in this it's I I am kind of like that once I kind of commit to something my heart is attached and I have a hard time breaking away to potentially explore something else I kind of I kind of do get that connection to the piece or to the people or to the story etc so the show's gone through like it went through a couple workshops and then the out of town excuse me at paper mill and now Broadway how has the story changed like how has the show changed in that time um it's changed to us it's changed a lot because I know it really well um there are probably three or four new songs since paper mill so that's cool to me the story has deepened and gotten more specific we get to know the characters especially in the band a little bit more even from from paper mill to broadway um all of their stories are fleshed out a little bit more and we're really rooting for their journey so i think the focus has kind of come in a little bit more we had a whole song at paper mill and in all the readings um where Julia works at the department store where she works, Hallie Brothers at the cosmetics counter. There used to be a whole song with like lipsticks and brushes flying everywhere and like people like leaping with like gift boxes of makeup. And like in previews at Paper Mail, Andy was like, this doesn't belong in this show. This is like, she loves me. This is not bandstand. And literally overnight, we cut 10 minutes of like that song and there was a scene in the whole deal. We cut that and turned it into one cross. You've seen the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one cross where I have the headscarf yes. on my, and I'm on my way to work. It, so now it's like a 60 second long scene. <laughs> and we cut like 10 minutes of a song in scene like overnight at Paper Mill. Wow. So things, yes, things drastically change. We made, Andy also changes things like up to the last minute. But we made a lot of little cosmetic changes and previews on Broadway. Like a little line here cut or a little thing here adjusted. And then also, I don't want to give this away, but I feel like people know by now um, that it, at Paper Mill, Corey's character, Donnie, was not really responsible for my husband's death, and in this one he is. So the stakes were raised more in that way, and the conflict, you know, suddenly becomes deeper. So things like that that really, that really made the audience care even more about the characters. I want to talk about the the uh, music style because I feel like I don't think I've ever asked you like what your training is, like what your vocal <laughs> training is, and like how because you, I mean, you know, Lord knows you have this glorious voice, but like is jazz new for you was it was it a challenge or was it something that you it's just always been in your repertoire yeah no it's definitely not what my voice um is used to um and I get to kind of explore that in this show and this is kind of like musical theater jazz thankfully for me I'm like if they they could have hired like a jazz jazz singer like someone who legit really does that and it what they would have been amazing (laughs) I'm often like how did I get this job I have like (laughs) this kind of crystalline voice that that uh, is trying to find soul do you know what I mean in this style of music um but the cool thing about this one is that she finds it throughout the show. So I get to kind of start as that like Rogers and Hammerstein legitty thing and then turn into this woman who discovers her voice throughout the who throughout the show. So that's really cool. I have to say I grew up 
you know, listening to like the Disney movies and like Rodgers and Hammerstein stuff. That's where my voice kind of lives. That's where I feel very comfortable. That's what comes really naturally to me. Belting, I got kind of later in my career, kind of around like Bonnie and Clyde time. And even I remember during the Grease show um, when I was like on TV, like in that that high note, hopelessly devoted to you, the high Ted, I always flipped into Uh my head voice. And Kathleen like pulled me aside like on TV and was like, can you belt that high note? And I'm like, yes, ma'am. Do you know what I mean? And that was the first time I belted. So it took it took someone like forcing me to do it. And then I like tried it. I just kind of like shouted the note. And I was like, oh, that's what that feels like. And then you kind of learn to do that. And then I, I feel like my belt really developed for real during Bonnie and Clyde. And Frank and I would have like voice lessons. And he'd just like make me sing his stuff and just start like – and I was like, oh, this – that it's like a muscle. You just learn to stretch it. You kind of have to work it to hit those notes. You can't expect to sing them overnight. But um, now I feel like I, I know how to navigate that and belting as well as high – you know, high legit stuff. And then now singing this kind of solely jazzy stuff. Okay, will you talk a little bit about your gorgeous husband's grandma, grandmother? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, my my husband, Nate, um, his grandma, Eleanor, was a singer in a swing band right after the war. It's pretty incredible. She um, was dating. They got married right after the war, actually. Was dating a guy named Steve Pinder, um, who was drafted into the Army Air Corps, and he was injured in training. And so he never saw combat, but was in a plane crash and was sent home home um, because he was injured and he could no longer play the trumpet which was his his gift so he couldn't play but he started a band and she became the singer of the band wow and um yeah i have pictures pictures in my dressing room and there this is that this is the steve pinder orchestra he's nate's grandparents yeah yep he looks just like him oh i guess he does you're right yeah he does um, Steve, they later got divorced. They were married for like 25 years, ended up getting divorced, and Steve has passed away now, and Grandma's remarried wow. to Grandpa Bill. Um, but yeah, he, there he is leading the band, and there's Grandma singing. She's so beautiful. Isn't she gorgeous. Oh my goodness. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's, it's... And they come to New York, right? They came inside. They were here on opening night. That's amazing. Gram- Grandma and Grandpa Bill, her new husband. Yeah, they were here on opening night, and the show takes place in Cleveland, and Grandma grew up in Cleveland. So No like, way! Yes, all this was in Cleveland. So like, I I literally am like living my grandma's story every day. Oh my goodness, that is so amazing. Well, I'm obsessed with Bandstand. I've seen it twice. I have to bring my husband back and see it again. Um, I just adore you. Thanks, Laura Osnes. Of course. Thank you for having me. So nice to see you as always. Okay, bye. Bye. 
terrific, folks. But unless we want a party full of flowers on the walls, someone has to make the very first move. And now a few words from our sponsors. It's finally officially summer. And the best part of summer is camp. But for real theater geeks, there's only one camp to go to where surprise visits from Broadway stars, Hamilton sing-alongs, and dance-offs are as normal as bunk beds and sunscreen. And that's Stage Door Manor. You guys have heard me talking about Stage Door for the past few months. But it's time for Curtains Up on another summer of unbelievable performances. The inspiration for Todd Graff's movie Camp and Mickey Rapkin's book Theater Geek, Stage Door is the performing arts training center for kids ages 10 to 18 in upstate New York that puts on an unbelievable 14 shows during each of its three-week sessions. I can't wait to tell you some of the shows they're putting on for this summer. Past Stage Door premieres include original stage versions of Rent, Avenue Q, Andrew Lippa's The Wild Party, and Woman in White. In addition to those shows, there are more than 100 classes at beginning and advanced levels. Everything from playwriting to stage combat. There are no auditions for admissions. They accept all levels of experience and talent and find roles for students in shows where everyone can have his or her moment in the spotlight. To find out more about Stage Door, go to stagedoormanor.com. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to sit down with Henry Lewis and Jonathan Sayer, two of the hilarious actor-writers behind this season's big Broadway comedy hit, The Play That Goes Wrong. If you haven't seen the play yet, you absolutely must run to the Lyceum Theater and check it out. It is hilarious, you guys. Lewis and Sayer are old friends who met at drama school in London, where they created their own theater company called Mischief Theater. The show that would become The Play That Goes Wrong premiered in a small 60-seat theater above a pub called The Red Lion in 2012. It quickly attracted the attention of fancy producers, and I'll let them tell you the rest. We are thrilled to be presenting this piece because, as you can see, we have managed to secure a much larger budget than usual. So we will certainly be able to outshine our rather underfunded 2014 production of Roald Dahl's classic, James and the Peach. (laughs) (laughs) Or last Christmas is The Lion and the Wardrobe. Or indeed, our summer musical, Cat. <laughs> um, Jonathan Sayer and Henry Lewis, welcome to Theater People Podcast. Thank Hello. you. Thanks for having us. Okay. I have so many questions. Am I right in my understanding that the show that became the play that goes wrong was originally called The Murder Before Christmas? That was right. So that was the original title of the sort of play within the play. Yeah. And what was what was that play like? So that show is sort of... It was like a, a sort of 55-minute version of, of the current show. Got it. So it was in a 60-seat theatre, so obviously the, the scale of the production was, was smaller. Um, but a lot of it is, is, is sort of similar to, you know, this, the, there's a lot of the stuff that is still in the show now was, was in the show at the beginning. Um, obviously the show's been extended into a two-act piece now. Uh, but most of the first act and the end is, is similar to what that version was. Uh, but it's been sort of extended and there's a bigger sort of 
middle section, I suppose. I made, um, when we opened, I made everyone a little video. I, I tried to get lots of different um, bits of footage from the show, the first time we ever did it in, in, in the pub theatre to now. And yeah, anyway, I was, it was very interesting to watch because in my head it's changed so much. Yeah. And it has, but at the same time, it's changed so little. It's so, because the spirit of it is, is totally identical and the characters are all there. And yeah, like, like Henry says, there's some moments that we, that we did at the pub and it's, it's verbatim and, and identical in blocking to how we're doing it now on Broadway. And then there's some other bits that have changed hugely and, and the show has been scaled up a lot. But it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very interesting, I suppose. It's a really fascinating part of like the legend of your show is that like it originally oh. played at a theater above a pub. One of the things I'm interested to know is like at what point did you guys start to get like commercial interest? So after we did the show at the Old Red Lion, which is the, the pub, the second run there, uh, we did the show at Trafalgar Studios, which is a sort of uh, theatre with two spaces. Uh, it's in the West End, just by Trafalgar Square. Um, and uh, we got the smaller space there. So it's certainly a 100-seat theatre, but a sort of West End studio space, I suppose. It was there that we sort of... Um, that we started to run the show, in, in, I suppose, in a slightly more commercial way, in that we did... Uh, we did 14 shows a week, so it was only an hour, but we did 14 shows, mm. so two a night, oh, wow. three on a Saturday. Yeah. You know, and we were and the stage, ma- we were the stage management team as well. So you would finish the yeah. show, and then you would literally be like, to, like you'd have to get the audience out. Like <laughs> so you'd you really, could like reset everything. Yeah, you'd really have to be like, out, oh, please do leave because we have to reset and and and, and start again. <laughs> and my job was to to replace all the kind of water based parts of the set. So there was kind of there's different bits where people spit water at each other and spit yeah. takes. And stuff, and my job was to refill all these different kind of buckets and tanks of water. But the water tap was only for the main space, so I used to have to run really far up to the top, fill all this water, run back down. But as the audience were going out, you all the cast would have to come out and start hoovering, vacuuming, and, that is and cleaning and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so we all had our own little jobs to do with the reset, and I think we reset the show, the whole show, in about eight minutes. And then we would get the the next crowd in. So it was like a 7.45, I think, show, and then a 9.15 or something like that. Mm. And um, yeah, and so we we did that. That was, we were there for about eight, eight, ten weeks in the end. And uh, that's when we met uh, Kenny Wax and Mark Bentley, uh, who were theatre producers in London. And uh, they said, well, look, we, we really like this show. We'd maybe like to take it on tour. And there was uh, a show that I think had just, that uh, there was someone was ill in, in a show, a touring show, and that a show had been cancelled. And so three or four venues had a an open slot at quite short notice for sort of the next kind of January, February time. Mm. And uh, he said, well, look, maybe we, you know, I could, we could book those in if you could make it into a two-act show by then. Um, How much time did that give you? We had a few months, a, few you know, months. a little while. We'd already booked the, to, to do that show in Edinburgh that, over that summer, so we, we did the one-hour version uh-huh. there while we were working on the two-act version. Um, and uh, we then had our first run of Peter Pan Goes Wrong planned for the Christmas of that year in uh, uh, the Pleasance, which is another sort of slightly larger fringe venue in, in North London. Yeah. And uh, so then we were working on this all the time, and, and, and as as Kenny Mark booked in that tour, more venues became interested, um, and it ended up being about 24 weeks, and we ended up doing a couple of weeks internationally as well. We did a, a one-off show in Barbados and a, a couple of shows in Dubai. And wow. Abu Dhabi. Yeah, yeah, Abu Dhabi as well. Wow. Which was amazing. So it kind of grew, and, and, and then from there it came into the West End, which we thought initially would just be, we thought over the summer it might do like four or eight weeks, but then it came in in uh, September. They gave us this space and said we'd like to try it as a long-running show, and we thought, well, that would be lovely if it works. Uh, and it did, and it's been extending ever since. So it started in September 2014, and it's still running now. It'll be its third birth, fourth birthday mm. in September. Yeah. Yeah. 
Florence, I'm sorry you have to see him like this. My fiancé. Are you sure he's dead, Thomas? I'll take his pulse. Charles gone. What a horror. <laughs> There's no question. He's passed away. I'm dumbfounded. He was as right as rain an hour ago. <laughs> but who on earth would want to murder him? He was so kind, so generous. A true philanthropist. <laughs> It's been great for us because we've learnt so much about how how theatre is made, just yeah. the nuts and bolts of it. And I think that's really important for actors and, and just creatives to know how how the industry that we all work in actually sustains and sets itself up. It's been it's been wonderful because never at, going back to my whole thing about mini, micro goals, never at any point have we said well, this is going to be a long run. We've only ever said, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great to do a little run here and see what happens? And each time this show has has surprised us. I believe we've um, we've extended the show again. Um, here. Yeah, you now. guys are like with us for the entire year. We have mm. you until 2018. Which, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's great. It's great, you know. But again, none of it, it's just, it's just been lovely to do these runs and just, and just for, for whatever reason, the show always seems to really inspire and, and, yeah. and, and titillate people and, and make them laugh in the right way. Was it like, when you guys, it was announced that you were going to the West End, was that just like mind-blowingly dream come true? Or were you just like, no, this is like the right next thing for us to, to be happening? Um, no, it was it was crazy at the time. I mean, I think we were. Bear in mind, we'd sort of done the show in London in this small studio space, and that's all we'd kind of known in terms of uh, our shows, sort of playing theatres. You know, it had always been in a small fringe way, and so yeah, the idea of it coming into town and, and being in a big West End space was no, it was unbelievable. I have some questions just about like the actual production of the show. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. number one, like it is obviously hysterically funny. Do you guys like, is it ever at this point now that you've done it like you said a thousand times? Like do you do you have to sometimes struggle to like find the humor or is it so like funny to you every time? Um well I think I mean obviously we well, obviously we know the jokes very well. So uh, that's <laughs> so we we I don't we we don't personally Laugh I'm necessarily. I'm surprised by any of the moments. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, my yeah, god, yeah. that's gone yeah. wrong. Oh my! Like, you so, know, yeah. I'm. We don't, we I'm don't, we, we don't laugh at that, but but that's a good thing, I think, because mm. um, uh, obviously, we, for, for 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 the characters, it's it's very serious. Yeah, they, they take it very seriously. So that's that's a kind of good thing, I think. Uh, uh, my brother dead? It can't be. He always tried to hide it, but his depression must have finally have overcome him. I believe it was suicide. It's true. His smile was often merely a fuckade. But now... (laughs) But Mr. Havisham, do you think there might have been someone with the means of motivation to kill Charles? Nonsense. (laughs) I want to talk to you about the whole bit that you have on that elevated platform. I mean, that's really high up. Like, if you were actually to fall off of that thing, you would really get hurt. How? It it must be, for some reason, I wasn't worried about you as an audience member. And is that a thing that you thought about? Like, were you like, we have to, this has to be mm. funny and be dangerous or look dangerous, but we have to not have the audience a, worry about well, you, us. It's a very, yeah. well, it's very, yeah, it's, I think it's very important that um, you have a sense of danger, but also actually underlying it is a sense of safety and control, I think. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think as soon as something and we've had that occasionally where something's gone wrong or something has, uh, you know, things fallen in the wrong way or whatever. 
and it and it does look actually genuinely a bit uncontrolled and a bit dangerous and that's really not funny that really sort of quite silences an audience it's just about rehearsal getting everything mm. right it's i mean it's constant sort of ongoing maintenance with all the stuff to make sure all the props are the same all the bits of furniture are the same so it yeah. sort of slots together like a bit of a jigsaw and then there's always just this like the floor is treated every day to make sure it's the right amount of slippery so it's a bit slippery so that i can slide around but yeah. not so slippery that i fall off so again it's all about just keeping it controlled and 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 just working with it regularly yeah. and, and getting to know how it works yeah physically. trying like an analogy that is slightly slightly out of my world so so maybe this is wrong but i don't think it is if you have a musical, a really good bit of a musical, because musicals are just, are just massive out here. Yeah. So I've been here, and, and a really big moment is is, is kind of when you, you have that song where the actor just, or, or the problem just hits their belt. Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. and it makes everyone go, oh my God, the music goes really loud. But if that person, if there was an, an element of that person like straining to hit the note or yeah. it was just a little bit beyond them or they were singing, just pushing a bit and they're not or totally in control. Or they look like control. they were in pain of yeah. doing yeah. it or doing it. Yeah. yeah, you know when you have like a note and they just hold it on. If, yeah. if they look really red and like, ah, then then you wouldn't enjoy it. Right. But there's something about like when that when singing seems really raw and emotional and big, but at the same time, you know that that's a performer. In the back yeah. of your head, you know that's a performer and they're totally in control of this. And I think it's the same with comedy. You want people to be like, oh my God, is he going to? die oh my god right. he's gonna hurt himself but then at the back of your mind you know actually it's fine it's like when you watch a buster keaton film mm-hmm. you're never like oh because oh, oh, you're just like well he's a master so you yeah. know that everything he does is perfectly plotted and it's choreographed like a dance mm-hmm. and, and a, a big element of, 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 of ha- you need to make sure you have that and like hen says to, to do that i think it's just about rigorous preparation and relentless rehearsal i think the show has been rehearsed yeah. to an inch of its life <laughs> We're sure to get to the bottom of this. Now the inspector has arrived. What a terrible snowstorm. <laughs> I'm Inspector Carter. This must be Charles Haversham. Take the body upstairs so I can examine it. Yes, Inspector. Are there any ideas as to the cause of death, Inspector? Could be a number of things. Strangulation, suffocation, poison. Before fully examining the body, I wouldn't like to say. How could someone do it? Try not to think about it, Miss Collymore. As soon as I've finished... uh, Up... Stairs... We touched on it a little bit, but people are definitely going to want to know. Like, do things ever go wrong in a funny way? Like, does something like that isn't life-threatening ever happen? That's like, uh uh-oh. It's so funny, because if it goes wrong, that usually means just that something hasn't cued or triggered. So Uh it just means it goes right, in a Uh way. It just means that a moment just just goes for nothing. So usually the audience don't really know, and it just carries on, and we just know, oh, we've lost a joke. I think... Or I think it's a, a um, um, I think that's a, a kind of well-known thing in fast that during a show you might drop one or two little notes or one or two jokes. It's very rare, maybe, that you you play the full score every night. So I suppose you have those moments where it's just like I don't know, a fire didn't start or a thing that's supposed to drop didn't drop, and you carry on and no one's any 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 the wiser sometimes you have moments where it goes wrong and it's not funny and someone gets hurt so uh-huh. for example dave dislocated his shoulder He's, that's happened to him a couple of times oh um little hits on the head a couple of concussions here and there wow um what other injury what other kind of goes wrong things have we had where it's been that oh dear that was 
And some, well, sometimes you have just some ridiculous ones. Your pants the other day that went wrong, but yes. that was that was that was a funny that was a funny example. <laughs> what happened? So my 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 <laughs> pants uh, ripped, and um, I was it was during the furniture bit up on the upper level, and it's very difficult to keep my legs together in, in, in any way up there. But so. not just his trousers; like everything was, it was it was all. Well, I was, trying to hold, I was trying to hold all the stuff, but but trying to also sort of hide myself. But we, did, we didn't know <laughs> that it split, so we could just see him up there, and he was moving in the most peculiar <laughs> manner, with his legs all kind of joined together and crossed. And we were like, what on earth is Henry doing? And like, oh, and I was like, are you okay? Are you injured? And he was like, mate, everything was on display. <laughs> they'd split, they'd really split from my knee right the way up to my crotch. And I was just like, oh my God, there's no way... Yes, now that was that was that was that was a scary moment. <laughs> well, when did you guys find out that you were coming to Broadway? How was that decision made? Well, we met uh, JJ saw the show in London when he was filming uh, Star Wars. He uh, had the evening off and wanted to see a show and came and saw Play That Goes Wrong. We met him afterwards, and he said to us and to Kenny and Mark, our producers in London, you know, if you ever need any help, if you'd like to take the show to America, you know, let me know, and if I if I can help, I will. Um, um, so we said absolutely. Well, we, we'd be, certainly be interested. And um, he put us in touch with Kevin McCollum, who's the sort of lead producer here. And um, so yeah, that was kind of how it began. And we thought, well, we just need to find the right space, really. And um, so we were talking to the Schuberts, and mm-hmm. they were trying to find somewhere for us. And we sort of looked, and uh, and the Lyceum came up as an option. So yep. we said absolutely, we'll we'll be there. I think what's been nice is as well is the theatre is perfect. Yeah, show. yeah, and I think actually there was a few other moments where we could have gone and we could have gone for a limited run, or it was like, oh, maybe this place, but it is massive, and actually, it's it's come out, it's come about at the perfect time in regards to the season. We, I think, we're one of the few comedies that that that's yeah. on, so that's really nice to kind of to be a kind of lone voice kind of of, of comedy, um, but also um, the theatre is just perfect. Like it, it feels so intimate. It's still mm-hmm. huge, still nine hundred and fifty seats. But there's so much history, uh, just uh, the way it feels. It just fits the show really, really well. We glossed over the fact that you guys won the Olivier for best – is mm. best comedy? Is that what you guys won? Best new comedy. Best new comedy. Yeah, that's the category, yeah. I mean, does that happen a lot in London where, like, a show that starts, like, in a pub sort of makes its way to the West End and then is, like, the hero of the season? That's pretty remarkable. I don't believe that happens that No, often. I think – yeah, it's, I think um, – I think that what has happened is – the show. I, this is something that Henry often says, but the, the show started in the smallest way you could possibly start a show, and I think that this this show's journey, I, I think, or at least I like to think, has has given a lot of a lot of kind of the commercial kind of side to theatre, and kind of a higher level of subsidised theatre. Mm-hmm. It's given them confidence to look at fringe theatre in a slightly different way and mm-hmm. be like, you know, there's some stuff out there that we really should be going out and watching these shows and discovering because there's a huge amount of work yeah. that is that is brilliant. Like, I go to the Edinburgh Fringe every year and, you know, some of those shows in, in the broom cupboards are our broom closets or whatever are fantastic you know <laughs> yeah. they're really really good and and it's so important that that people who who are in the commercial sector and people who can really make stuff happen are exploring those shows and having faith in that whole world because the grassroots of theater is such an exciting place it's such an exciting place and it's really really important that people are uh, are bringing that work into bigger houses because 
because it's really good. Well, you guys are amazing. Thank you for coming to do this. Thank I'm you. so happy to have you guys on the podcast. Oh, thank you for oh, having pleasure. us. This yeah, has been lovely. Really and thank you for your great show. Thanks so thank much. You. Good luck day. with everything going forward. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, bye. Bye. Guess mine is not the first Hey, theater people, Patrick here. So as you know, Theater People is the official podcast of BroadwayCon 2018. So between now and then, we're going to share with you updates, stories, anecdotes, sound clips, anything we can think of to get you excited about BroadwayCon 2018 and to convince anyone who's on the fence about coming that it really is a Broadway experience like no other and that if you can be, you really have to be there. Last week, I asked listeners who'd been to BroadwayCon 2016 or 2017 to send in a 60-ish second voice memo telling me about their favorite moment or memory from BroadwayCon. We're going to start playing those next week. You can send your voice memo to patrick at theaterpeople.com, and that's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. Today, I want to share my favorite memory. So, in preparing for BroadwayCon 2017, I asked the powers that be if I could moderate a panel of out LGBT actors. We'd call it Out on Broadway, and we'd chat about the ups and downs and the general experience of being an openly LGBT person on Broadway. They said yes, and I began booking. The group I assembled for the panel was beyond my wildest dreams. Truly, all of them are heroes to me. It was Lisa Crone, Beth Malone, Andrew Keenan-Bolger, Nathan Lee Graham, and Robin de Jesus. I knew that the conversation would be exciting and intense, but I guess I wasn't prepared for how emotional everyone was going to get. Here's one of my favorite moments from the discussion. It's Jay Armstrong Johnson talking about the power of social media and the ability to use his platform to express himself and to reach LGBT kids who might be struggling and let them know that it really does get better. Just a warning, there's some strong language. I mean, the, the last 10 years, we've seen so much happen. I mean, I was, I was marching on Washington with Gavin Creel on the revival of Haircats, with Lady Gaga, I mean, we, and we saw the thousands upon thousands of people that were there marching for equality, and we saw the legislation pass, and we got marriage equality, and for the first time in my life, I didn't realize I was going to be able to marry the man that I love. And, and now that we see this, like, backtracking thing, I'm the angry person. Uh, I'm posting so much shit. I, I'm unabashed about it because I was in the closet for a while. I was told to stay in the closet even when I came out of the closet, and I don't give a fuck. There's kids out there who don't have voices. <laughs> that used to be me. So if I'm not a voice for them, then what am I doing on this planet? If, not, if I'm not using my following, if I'm not using my platform in the right way, then there's no fucking reason why I should be doing it. So. Thanks to Caroline Hanlon for sending me that audio. I want to hear your BroadwayCon stories, you guys. What inspired you, shocked you, or just plain impressed you? Record a voice memo and send it to me at patrick at theaterpeople.com. And again, that's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. And remember, you can find all the information and tickets at broadwaycon.com. How about a day? What do you say? I got some moves that I'd love to show you. 
Theater People is a product of Theater Podcast Productions and is produced by Mike Jensen and me, Patrick Hines. I edited this episode. To check out all the podcasts we're making, including our latest true crime comedy podcast called True Crime Obsessed, visit us at theaterpodcastproductions.com. Special thanks to our Patreon associate producers, Robbie Roselle, Cynthia Wallach, and Ty Williams. We love you, you guys. And our Patreon supporters, Carol Spellman, Jacqueline Dixon, hey girl, and Matthew Wood. If you would like to become a Patreon supporter and earn cool rewards for supporting Theater People Podcast, go to patreon.com and search for Theater People Podcast. Thanks also to our sponsors, Stage Door Manor. You can check them out at stagedoormanor.com and BroadwayCon. You can find tickets and information at broadwaycon.com. Thanks also to Steve Tipton, Eric Emsch, Keith Allen Herzog, Grace Fromm, and Max Sadaka, and also the staff at Oswald's. We'll be back next week with my new best friend, Julia Murney, who I'm literally obsessed with. She should seriously call the police. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. <laughs>